Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And today is Sunday, and I did not have a guest scheduled for this weekend. It is the 4th of July weekend, and I had a lot going on in the prior week, so I just did not successfully get anybody scheduled. That being said, I did find an interesting topic for today's episode. We're going to look into some of the early pioneer history of a little town called Buchanan over in Berrien County. It has some fascinating early pioneer history, and like all Michigan cities, it has its own story to tell. So come along and join me. So Buchanan is a city in Berrien County, which is the far southwest corner of the state of Michigan. It is the most southwesterly county that you can find in the state. And the population of Buchanan, according to the 2010 census, was about 4,400 people. Now the city is located on the southeast corner of Buchanan Township, and it's about five miles west of Niles, Michigan. Now, as you probably guessed, the community was named after James Buchanan, who was the 15th president of the United States. Buchanan, of course, is the one that preceded Lincoln, who was the 16th president. Most people are more familiar with President Lincoln than they are with President James Buchanan. Buchanan was originally an American lawyer, and he was a diplomat, and he served as the president of the United States from 1857 to 1861. And he'd previously served as the Secretary of State from 1845 to 1849. And he also represented Pennsylvania in both houses of the U.S. Congress. So he had had a kind of interesting back history. And if you get into a little bit of uh, Buchanan's history as a president, he wouldn't be remembered as the strongest president. In fact, some may go so far as to say he was the weakest president. And I'll just leave it at that. But getting back to the city of Buchanan, I found a very fascinating pioneer record of its formation. Now, in the early pioneer era, around 1829, there were six sections of this southeast corner of Buchanan, which included an Indian reservation. And that's the term they use in the reference. We normally refer to them as Native Americans now, or we refer to the specific tribe. In this case, I didn't see the tribe specifically listed. So it's probably Potawatomi or Ottawa in that corner of the state. And so when the early pioneers located in the vicinity of where Buchanan stands today, there was a Native American village of about 300 people, and they were presided over by a chief named Moccasin. He occupied the Platte, which became known as Moccasin Bluff. Now, if you go to Buchanan today and just go outside of the area, there is a historic landmark for a place called Moccasin Bluff Site, and it's an archaeological site located along Redbud Trail and the St. Joseph River north of Buchanan. And it was listed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1977. And it's been classified as a prehistoric site in Michigan because the history of that site goes back 
thousands of years to as early as 630 BC, right along the St. Joseph River, as some of the temporary camps of Native Americans, mostly of the Potawatomi people, and they were there for thousands of years. So, Fascinating site. There's a lot of history to Moccasin Bluff site just north of Buchanan. So Russell McCoy came to Berrien County in 1829. And then in 1830, he engaged in some work at a mission that was near Niles, Michigan. And as part of his work, he was to build fires in the morning, but was once dismissed from the employment of the missionaries for stopping to talk with the girls that were in the area after building the fire. Apparently, he was rehired again, but was dismissed a second time for swearing at the hogs when the hogs broke out and got into the field, and he had to engage in a lot of exercise in rounding them up. So after he left the mission, he worked for several years as a boatman on the river, and then in 1834, he resolved to stake a claim on land at the mouth of the creek, which appeared to be an excellent place for a mill. And the first step to obtain the claim to the land was to get permission of the Native Americans in that area to build a house because it was on their reservation. And so he went and approached one of the chiefs named Topin Abey. And after hearing his request, the chief said no. So the old chief always meant what he said. And McCoy went to go see another Native American by the name of Pokagon and who was also a very shrewd, but he didn't want to offend the other chief. So he also did not give permission. But McCoy went ahead and built a solitary log house. Now, when Pokagon told him that he wasn't going to give him permission, but he didn't want to offend Mr. McCoy by telling him no, he just basically refused to give him any answer at all. But he did tell him that if he built the house against Topanabe's wishes that they would come and throw it down, meaning they'd come and tear it down. So McCoy went ahead and built this solitary log house despite this. And one day, the Native Americans, taking advantage of his short absence from the area, they went in there and they tore it down. So McCoy came back, saw that the log cabin was torn down, and he began to commence rebuilding it. And so he did. He built it a second time, and this time they allowed it to remain up. So I guess they saw that he was determined to do this. So after McCoy had finished his house and he had rebuilt it, Hiram Ray came into the area, and his name is spelled W-R-A-Y. And he arrived there with his wife and one child. And Mr. McCoy was a single man. And so he boarded with Mr. Ray. And in his company, the two of them decided to erect a sawmill the following year. And then a man by the name of Charles Cowles came to the area in 1834 and made a claim on the southwest corner of that same section, and he erected a shingle mill, and his mill was running before McCoy's mill. So it was around the same time that McCoy got there and built his cabin that this guy filed a claim in that same area, and he erected his own mill. So, But he got his mill running first. 
There was also some 14 sections of the land in the area that were set aside for university purposes, and some of those were selected on different parts of the reservation. One of the selections that was made by the commissioners for this project for the university fell on the land of Mr. Cowles, and so he raised his price and sold it to them, and then he also sold some other property to a man by the name of Leonard Madrin. And he sold that property, which consisted of a claim on the land and a small shanty that was on that parcel and a cow and a half acre of potatoes. Leonard Madrin sold it for $50 to another man named Andrew Day. So Day bought the shanty that he built and got the cow and the half acre of potatoes for $50 plus the claim on land. And so Mr. Day moved into his place on the 6th of July, 1836. And he lived there the rest of his life. He was the third oldest resident in the area next to Charles Cowles and Russell McCoy. They had been the oldest inhabitants of Buchanan. So another man by the name of James Hatfield and another man by the name of Atkins came to the area in 1835, and they put up another sawmill in the area. So now there were three mills operating right in that area of Buchanan. And there's a lot of other residents that arrived during that time. There were the Sherwoods, the Rose, and the Watsons, and the Martindales. And they all lived in that section, and they were among the early settlers of that whole community of Buchanan. So Buchanan became organized as a township in 1837, and the first meeting of electors was held on April 3rd of that year in the house of a man by the name of C.C. Wallen. And at this meeting, Mr. Wallen was chosen to be moderator, and Darius Jennings was chosen to be the clerk. And in that meeting, they elected Wallen to be the supervisor and Jennings to become the first clerk of the township. And the number of ballots that were cast in that election was a total of 15, which is kind of interesting to look back at the time and the size of the communities. And just by comparison, by 1848, the number of ballots that were cast in that election was 149. And skipping ahead to many years later in 1868, the number of ballots in that election was 541. So you can see between 1837 and 1868, the community of Buchanan was growing. By 1870, the population of the village of Buchanan had grown to 1,154 people. Now, the village of Buchanan owed its existence to McCoy's Creek. Now, this stream took its name not from Russell McCoy, as one would think when I read the, his name at the beginning, but another McCoy who was Reverend Isaac McCoy. And he was the missionary that was over in the Niles area and had come later on. And it was said that Mr. McCoy found the stream and he claimed it as his own private fishing place. And from this fact, it soon became known as Old McCoy's Creek. But as early as 1836, there were two sawmills and a flour mill on the banks of this creek. And that was really the backbone of the early foundation of the village of Buchanan. Later on, a factory for bedsteads was established in that village of Buchanan by 
CS and HS Black, and it became known as the Black Factory. And it, along with the mills, became the dominant industry in the growing community. And that was essentially a furniture manufacturing company that made bedstands. And the village was essentially platted in 1842, and the early streets included Front Street and 3rd Street and Oak Street, and the village had grown to consist of about a dozen buildings, including the flour mill and the Black's factory, and a few general stores and other types of businesses that were established, including a school, which was established on Main Street near the corner of 3rd Street. And it was a 20 by 40 schoolhouse and there was no burial ground in the village until about 1844 when a small piece of ground was established for that purpose. It was a one acre parcel of land that was donated to the village by Mr. Mitchell for use as a burial ground and the first burial in that cemetery was a child of David Sanford and the second and third burials were Mrs. Nichols' daughter and and another infant child. And a man by the name of J.D. Ross came to Berrien County in 1834, and he made himself useful for a few months by working as a blacksmith over in Niles. And then he went to Indiana and was in business for years in Hamilton, Indiana. And from that place, he moved to Buchanan in 1847 and went into the mercantile business and opened a firm named J.D. Ross and Son. And he was in that business for nearly 20 years and was a prominent merchant in the village. An extensive fire came along and one of the last days of October in 1862 and laid to ashes all of the buildings on Front Street east of Maine, destroying about 20 buildings by that time and a large amount of other property that was connected to the buildings like sheds and barns and that sort of thing. All of the brick stores that were in downtown Buchanan, they may still exist today, are ones that were built after that fire of 1862. And after 1860, the village had pretty much doubled in population size. It had two hotels, one variety store, four dry goods stores, seven groceries, two drug stores, three boot and shoe stores, two hardware stores, a tin shop, a jewelry store, and a new store and it also had two shops that were into watchmaking and repairing items. There was also a bakery and two meat markets and two harness shops. There were several dressmaking and millinery establishments and there were two tailor shops, a furniture store, a photograph gallery, and a wagon and carriage manufacturing facility and a sash and blind factory. And this is in addition to three flour mills, a lumber yard, and two sawmills. And there was also the customary barber shops and livery stables that were common during that era. And there were even five establishments that sold whiskey, along with four lawyers and five physicians and two steam printing houses. So Buchanan was growing as a community in the 1860s through the 1870s. And of course, by 1870, they had a railroad and they were able to start shipping goods out of Buchanan. And there is a list here in this History of Buchanan reference that I've been reading from that talks about 
some of the goods that were shipped by railroad from Buchanan in 1870. It's kind of interesting. There were 8,589 barrels of flour, 414 barrels of apple, 89 head of cattle, 1,533 live hogs, uh, 13,413 bushels of wheat, 100 bushels of oats, 1,041 bushels of corn, 510... 520 bushels of potatoes, and 9,873 bedsteads. And there were 932 lounges and a lot of other smaller items that were bundled up and shipped as one of the commodities that they produced in the village of Buchanan. Now, historically, Buchanan has become very well known as the Redbud City because of the many redbud trees that have historically lined the city streets and the major approaches to the city. And it's been recognized as a Tree City USA by the National Arbor Day Foundation for that very reason. Now, there was an interesting mural that was painted in the post office in Buchanan in 1941. And it was part of this section of fine arts projects. And a lady by the name of Gertrude Goodrich painted a mural. And it was called Production. And it was inside the Buchanan post office. Now, it was later painted over, but currently it's in the process of being restored. So somebody made a bad decision in later years to paint over that mural rather than restore it. And another incident on the timeline of Buchanan in April of 1979, farms and houses and mobile homes just north of the city were damaged by an F2 tornado. So that was a significant weather event that impacted the area in 1979. So finally, let's take a look at some of the notable people that came from Buchanan. Let's start with Peggy Kramer, who was an All-American Girls Professional Baseball League player, and she was born in Buchanan. Now, there was also Virgil Exner. He was an influential automobile designer, and he lived in Buchanan during his youth, and he graduated from Buchanan High School. John Grant was a singer-songwriter, and he was born in Buchanan. There was uh, Jack Sky Knight, and he was an aviation pioneer. And then there was Carrie Moon, who was an urban planner and a politician. Harry Niles was an outfielder and a second baseman for the St. Louis Browns, the New York Highlanders, the Boston Red Sox, and also played with the uh, Cleveland Naps, and he was born in Buchanan. And this is an interesting one, Jackson Schultz. He was the 200-meter sprint champion in the 1924 Olympics, and he was portrayed in the film Chariots of Fire. So if you remember that, I think that film won a lot of Oscars, as I recall, somewhere in the 80s or 90s when it came out. He was also a successful author. Jackson Schultz was born in Buchanan. Another man by the name of Jay Town was a United States District Attorney, and he was raised in Buchanan, and he graduated from Buchanan High School. And finally, Hannah Roberts. She's an American BMX freestyle cyclist, and she was raised in Buchanan, and she graduated from Buchanan High School. And she is the three-time world champion of the UCI Urban Cycling World Championships, and... She's a silver medalist in freestyle BMX from the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. And that is the list of notable people that I was able to find that came from 
the city of Buchanan. So it's an interesting town to drive through, has some very interesting old brick buildings. And yes, I know that that's common in a lot of old towns in Michigan, but every one of them has its own unique character. So if you're ever wanting to do a road trip, sometimes going down and just checking out some of these smaller communities that you may not always travel to in your road trips by following the main highways. So sometimes it's better to go off on some of the back roads and check out some of these smaller communities. And these are great ways that you will find out about a lot of good uh, restaurants and stores and all kinds of interesting, unique businesses that are located within these smaller communities. And it always helps with local economies if you do that. So it's always a good idea to leave the highway sometimes and check out some of the back roads and travel through some of these smaller towns. But that's going to do it for today's journey through history. I hope you're enjoying your 4th of July weekend and being safe out there and emerge from the weekend with all of your fingers. That would be my wish to everyone. (laughs) Some people get crazy with fireworks this time of year. And that is going to do it for today's journey. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. And if you would be so kind as to leave a review or a rating on whatever app that you are listening on, it would be greatly appreciated. It always helps me get new listeners out there. And don't forget that uh, I will be performing later this month in July, on July 29th, at the Battle Creek Regional History Museum. And I will put the links to that show in the description of this podcast. If you guys want to get tickets for that, all the proceeds goes to support the Battle Creek Regional History Museum. And I spend a lot of time volunteering there, as you probably already know. And many of you have met me at some of the events there. And I really appreciate it when people that listen to my podcast come up and say, hey, I've been listening to your podcast. And I met a a number of people that way over this uh, past weekend with the Dell Shannon weekend, where there was a lot of people in town for that uh, tremendous weekend of events. And uh, if you want to mark that on your calendar for next year, it's going to be uh, the weekend after Father's Day is when we hold the Del Shannon weekend. And uh, this year was our first annual one that we did. And it was just a tremendous joy-filled weekend. Uh, that's all I can say about it. It was uh, a lot of people came into town from all over Michigan. But what surprised me is we had people coming into Battle Creek that were flying in from California, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, driving in from Ohio and Indiana to come and attend the Del Shannon weekend. They were, they were staying in local hotels and just coming to enjoy and celebrate uh, Del Shannon. And we even had a couple that flew in from London and spent the weekend with us, which was quite something. So that was a big surprise to meet a lot of people from all over the country. And I think that's uh, important for the museum to be a magnet for drawing people from out of the area. That's how you bring money into the community. And of course, every one of those people from out of town comes and spends money within your community, and that's what it's all about. So that's part of the reason I'm involved in the museum, is to help with tourism, but also to preserve history. So I'm just going to leave you with that, and I hope that you will come and check out some of the future events at the museum, and definitely experience the Dell Shannon weekend when we host it again next year. It's just a great weekend filled with music and classic cars and history, which is what it's all about. So 
all, that's going to do it for today's show. And I hope you'll join me next time when we take another journey into yesterday and explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past. Thank you for listening. Thank you.